if you have your Bibles, be turning to 2 Timothy. And as you're getting there, I want to remind you about this letter. This is a letter in which Paul is imprisoned. And in fact, you may remember at the end of Acts, Paul was under house arrest. It seems he was released and went back to work on, in the mission fields and eventually returned to Rome, was arrested again. And Paul has already had uh, one hearing, and it didn't appear that it went well. And Paul is recognizing the likelihood that he is near the end of his earthly journey. Now, Paul is excited to be with the Lord, there's no question, but just as any of us would as we approach the end of our time here on earth, there are things that Paul wants to see happen. And one of the most important things to Paul is that he wants to see Timothy again. Timothy, this son in the faith, this one who's so dear to him, he wants him to make the journey to come and see him one more time. So this is a beautiful letter, an important letter, a personal letter, also a church letter. So many different things that can be said about this letter. But at the time this letter is written, Timothy is in Ephesus, and Paul has been advising him, and he wants him to come and see him one last time. I'm going to read the text again because it's important for us to have it in our minds as we begin uh, to walk through it this morning. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, according to the promise of life which is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, a beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve with a pure conscience, as my forefathers did, as without ceasing, I remember you in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see you, being mindful of your tears that I may be filled with joy when I call to remembrance the genuine faith that is in you, which dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded is in you also. Therefore, I remind you to stir up the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, But share with me in the sufferings of the gospel according to the power of God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Jesus Christ before time began, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel to which I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and a teacher of the Gentiles. For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. Those are the words we just sang a moment ago. As we think about this text, I want us to remember a couple of points, three points actually. First of all, Paul's purpose. Paul has a purpose in writing this letter. We need to look at it. Second of all, Timothy's mission. And lastly, our lesson. There's something here that we need to learn. Beginning first with this idea of Paul's purpose, I want to start this very simple sermon with the idea that Paul had a purpose in writing this letter. Now, this is a text that is often preached on Mother's Day. There's there's no doubt about that. In fact, it may be most frequently preached on Mother's Day, but Paul did not write this as a Mother's Day sermon. 
And so I, I say that as I begin to preach it as a Mother's Day sermon. It's, I don't think it's inappropriate. Because in this text, Paul does make a point, doesn't he? That Timothy stands in a heritage of faith. In fact, uh, that's really what this sermon is entitled, a godly heritage. Paul is saying, Timothy, you stand in a godly heritage, a godly line of faithful people. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Now, why does Paul, why is Paul concerned that there's even the remote possibility that Timothy would forget it? Well, much of this letter is aimed at a call or a challenge from Paul to Timothy to be faithful in very trying circumstances. Notice in the text we read, just this short text, there is a charge to not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord or of Paul, his prisoner. There seems to be some concern that there is the possibility that Timothy might be ashamed. He tells him that God has not given us a spirit of fear. It seems that Timothy uh, is a little timid. He's young after all. Maybe there's a little timidity with Timothy. And so Paul gives these charges, stand fast, stand firm, stand strong in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do not be ashamed of his testimony and don't be ashamed of Paul. You know, my friends, it would be easy to remember here, we should remember here, that Paul is locked away in prison, in a dungeon, in a terrible situation. People have abandoned Paul. You know, at this moment, the Christian leaders are being killed or have already been killed. There's not many remaining. It might actually feel as though the church is nearing an end, about to fall apart, about to, to be decimated and done away with. And so it's in the midst of such trying times that Paul writes to Timothy and says, don't be ashamed, don't ever be ashamed, don't give up, be faithful, stand strong in the faith, trust in Christ Trust in his mission, trust in his providence, trust in his plan. It's his mission, it's his church, he's in command. And so there is this charge in perilous times to stand strong. What is the main command, if you will, to Timothy? Preach the word. Preach the word in season, out of season. Preach the word. He gives a number of analogies in this text, doesn't he? Uh, be like a, a soldier. So many of these pictures of standing in duty, recognizing what God has called you to, not based on your accomplishments or your gifts, but uh, on God's grace. In fact, your own gifts flow out of the grace of God, for he has given them to you. And so there's a call to stand in faithfulness, to stand on truth, to trust in God. These are charges given by Paul to Timothy. Because if you looked at it in earthly eyes alone, it might seem as if it's all about to collapse. But through all of that, Paul has hope. You know, one of the most amazing things when you read 2 Timothy is there seems to be a whole lot of bad news going on. Paul in prison, near his end. Timothy having great difficulty ministering as a pastor. We know from 1 Timothy, false teachers everywhere, disorder in the church, problems abound. To earthly eyes, it could be the end. And yet Paul never for a moment thinks that. Never for a moment. He remembers in whose hands all these things rest. Paul knows in whom he has believed. He knows that Christ's church cannot fail because it rests on the promises of God. 
So there may be difficulty for Paul. There may be difficulty for Timothy. But the church will prevail. The church will prevail. You see this confidence throughout Paul's writings, but particularly here in these dark times. So it's a church letter. It's a letter to a church. It's a letter, yes, to Timothy, but it's a letter to really speaking to a church, isn't it? And to us even today by the will of God. It's written by one who calls himself an apostle of Christ. We know that he was an apostle. He's called by the will of God and according to God's promise realized in Christ, according to the will and plan of God, Paul has been called to preach the gospel. But it's also a personal letter, isn't it? One of the things about this letter that is most endearing to us is that Paul is writing a personal letter to someone he loves very much. His son in the faith, Timothy, one who is precious to him, one who has meant so much to him through the years. Timothy came to know the Lord through the ministry of Paul. He grew in faith under the teaching of Paul. Paul is the one who laid hands upon him as he was called into the ministry. Paul has literally watched God work in the life of Timothy. He has seen Timothy grow from the just first days of his Christian walk into this young man who stands for Jesus Christ. On top of all that, Timothy has been incredibly loyal to Paul. You know, it's amazing as you read Paul's writings. It's heartbreaking. It shouldn't surprise us, but it, it is surprising from time to time how many of those that Paul thought he could trust or thought cared about him fled from him in moments of trouble. Paul says, when I stood, none stood with me, but Jesus Christ stood there. But Timothy is one that we never read of, of turning away from Paul or, or betraying Paul or, or slinking away to get out of the line of fire. Timothy always stood strong. And it seems here that he's telling him again, I need you to stand strong. Don't be ashamed of the testimony of Christ. Do not either be ashamed of my work or testimony. I think Timothy's loyalty to Paul as one who could always be counted on meant so much to Paul. It was an encouragement to him in difficult days. And so therefore, Timothy is not just a son in the faith, but a beloved son in the faith. Paul loves Timothy and loves to know that Timothy has dedicated his life to serving Christ just as Paul has. So Paul is writing to challenge him, to challenge him. Timothy needs to be challenged. Timothy needs to grow to meet the call that God has placed on him. He needs to become a lion of the faith. He needs to be strong, fearless, bold, proclaim the truth of God. So in verse 6, Paul tells Timothy that he is writing to stir him up in order to meet the challenges to which he's been called. To stir up. That gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. That in those challenges, he will have to be courageous and resolute. And he will have to stand on the word of Almighty God. And Paul challenges him to do just that. So if we've seen that Paul had a purpose in writing this letter, we also want to recognize that Paul notices that Timothy has a heritage. Timothy has a heritage, a beautiful and special heritage. Paul has confidence that Timothy will rise to meet the challenge. Now, why is that? Is it that Paul recognizes that Timothy is a uniquely gifted young man or in super intelligent? or No, none of those things. 
Now, we're not speaking ill of Timothy, but Paul never trusts in human effort or human will. Paul looks at Timothy and knows that he will meet the challenges because he knows what is found in Timothy. He knows that there is the presence of the empowerment of the Holy Spirit within Timothy because Timothy has trusted in Christ. And Paul knows that all those who trust in Christ are indwelt with the presence of the Holy Spirit. So in other words, Paul's confidence is not in Timothy. Paul's confidence is in God. Paul's confidence is in God. God's call, God's empowerment of Timothy, that's what gives Paul confidence in this young man. And as we said, Paul has seen that calling firsthand, hasn't he? As we've gone through Thessalonians, here is an an early writing of Paul, an early letter, and yet who is there with him? Yes, Silas, but also Timothy. In fact, one of our uh, most recent sermons uh, is that's been put up is what? It's about the fact that Paul sent Timothy back to Thessalonica. First of all, he trusted him. He said, if I need to send someone to represent me, I'm sending Timothy. But it's not just that. Part of that letter is about how this was difficult for Paul, like a grieving type decision. It was like giving up his son. Why? Because he loves Timothy like a son. So sending him back into a dangerous situation was difficult for Paul because he loved him so much, but he knew that he could trust him because he had seen him grow in the faith. He had seen his work for the Lord empowered by the Holy Spirit. Paul had great confidence in this young man. My friends, he had seen it in his life, but he had seen it even elsewhere. As Paul describes this faith that he had seen, in Timothy and in a few others before Timothy. Paul describes it as sincere or genuine faith. Sincere or genuine faith. Now, the word that he uses there is anipokritos. It means literally to be without hypocrisy. That's that's what it means. It means to not be fraudulent, not feigned, not acting, genuine. What Paul's saying is Timothy's faith is the real deal. Timothy's faith is the real deal. It's a faith that's in continuity with faith that Paul has seen before. I just mentioned that. Paul has seen this sort of faith before, hasn't he? Because Paul has known some people that were pretty important in Timothy's life. Paul has known Timothy's mother, Eunice, and has seen the same faith in her. The same faith in her. And not just his mother, but also his grandmother, Lois. Timothy has been presented a godly heritage by these women who were in his life, the women of the previous two generations, the women who raised him and mentored him and loved him and taught him. They have presented for him a godly heritage. Now, at this moment, we might think, we might object, wait a minute, godliness cannot really be passed down. Isn't this the message of Romans, of Galatians? Isn't this Paul's argument elsewhere that just because you're a son of Abraham does not mean you have the righteousness of Abraham? And we would say, yes, that is Paul's argument there. But Paul isn't talking about this being handed down automatically to Timothy from Lois and Eunice. He's not saying that. We would recognize that what Paul says is that Timothy has been presented a pattern to follow by his mother and his grandmother, 
a faithful, godly heritage modeled, displayed, and lived out before Timothy as he grew up. Now, when we say heritage, we don't mean it's automatically inherited. We simply mean that it's displayed for this young man. He had a pattern to follow. It's part of his family history as we see his faithful mother and grandmother. My friends, that's what Paul says in Romans. Abraham was a faithful man. Abraham was a man of faith, a model of faithfulness, a model of trust in God. And those children of Abraham that we count as children of Abraham are those who have the faith of Abraham. So again, it's those who follow in that path. It's those who show that same trademark, if you will, of faithfulness that are accounted as the uh, spiritual descendants of Abraham. And likewise, Paul says, I have seen that their faith, that they taught you, that they instructed you in, that they modeled for you, was not in vain. For you show the very same faith. You show the very same faith. What a legacy was presented to Timothy by these two dear women, these two dear Christian women. You know, one of the things that really is amazing to me to think about is these two women would be unknown to history if it wasn't for Timothy and the way God used him. By God's grace, the way Timothy was used, we now have a record of Eunice and Lois because of that. But my friends, it isn't a coincidence either that Timothy had this modeled heritage, a godly heritage before him. God works this way. God in his wisdom and grace has chosen to work through families. He uses the previous generations to bring the gospel to later generations. Isn't this why we see in the Old Testament over and over the instruction of parents to teach their children, of grandparents to teach their grandchildren? I mean, it's the idea here, right, to pass this along, to teach, to answer questions. In fact, in the wisdom and plan of God, the home is the primary place of instruction for children when it comes to spiritual matters. I fear far too often today we think the church is responsible for this. Now the church comes alongside parents, helps parents, encourages parents, counsels parents, whatever we need to do, but it was not God's design that the church be the spiritual teachers of your children. That is parental responsibility. That's why in the Old Testament, though they had a religious structure, it said, when your children ask what this meal means, you are to tell them that God, in his mighty, by his mighty arm, led the children of Israel out of Egypt in a single night. Or when they ask, what do these stones represent? You are to tell them, God, in his faithfulness, led our people into the land of promise. My friends, that is not the children of Aaron's responsibility. That is parents' responsibility. And the truth is, it is today, just as much as it was then. We had a sermon back in December, didn't we, on family worship. It should be at the heart of our lives, family Bible reading, family devotion time, talking about what it means to walk by faith. That is what we are called to do. Timothy had something like that, didn't he? Paul says, I know your mother. I know your grandmother. I know the great example of faith that they lived out before you. And I am convinced when I look at your life, Timothy, that you have that very same faith. You have that very same faith. My friends, that is successful modeling of our walk before the Lord 
we need to recognize that in this text. So if we see all of that, it brings us to our third and final point this morning, our lesson. There is application for us here, isn't there? Again, I want to go back to what I said earlier. Paul did not intend this to be a Mother's Day letter. He didn't intend this to be used for Mother's Day sermons for the next 2,000 years when he wrote it. It has functioned that way oftentimes. Why? Because there is an encouraging message here, isn't there? And let's be honest, mothers need encouragement. Mothers have a difficult task. Oftentimes, mothers have a thankless task. We know that. They also have an incredibly important task, and they need encouragement. And what more encouraging words can you find than what's said here? Timothy, I trust that your faith is genuine because I know the faith of your mother and grandmother and what they modeled for you. That it's a faith without hypocrisy. It's the real deal. It's the genuine item. I know their faith. I know what type of people they are. And I know what type of person you are. And you stand in a godly line. A godly line of faith. You know, it's interesting as we've been going through 1 Thessalonians. Remember Paul made the argument that the church at Thessalonica had suffered at the hands of their own countrymen just as the churches in Judea had. And he was making a point there, when you are persecuted, remember that you stand in a a line of faithfulness. You've been kind of drawn into the, the heritage of faithfulness of the churches in Judea who suffered greatly for their faith. And that itself drew them into a line of faithfulness that Christ exhibited as he himself was persecuted. And all as part of a line of all the faithful workers of God prophets of God, messengers of God, who have all been persecuted by their own countrymen. Well, in that same way, there's also a heritage of faithfulness, and you have been called into it. Just as your mother and your grandmother stood in faithfulness, so you too stand in faithfulness. So this is an encouragement to mothers everywhere that they have an important mission, an essential mission before God. I said a moment ago that this is often how God chooses in his sovereign purpose to work. To use the very structures he gave us, like the family, which, by the way, he invented. To raise and rear children in in godliness, to teach them the way that they should go. God's primary plan is that it should be modeled in the home. And his primary way of doing that is when there are two godly parents, a father and a mother there, teaching their children together. And yet I want it to be said that even under less than ideal situations, because in this case, uh, there's no evidence that Timothy's father was a believer. And look here, even what God can do through one faithful parent. One faithful parent. Here is a faithful mother and a faithful grandmother, and God uses them for his glory to reach this child, Timothy, to, to lead him in the right paths, to teach him about God to teach him what it means to live by faith and to live out our calling, to live in holiness. These two women left an indelible impression on this young man. And God used that to bring him to Christ. My friends, we need to recognize that God calls parents today to the same charge. Parents are responsible to train their children in the way that they should go to model for them a godly life, a life of faith, 
to teach them the scriptures, to take them to church. If nothing else, take them to church to teach them that our God is a glorious God, a holy God, worthy of worship, and to recognize that we are a fallen people and that we need to repent of our sin and trust in God's grace and mercy as it was presented to us in the person and work of Christ. That that is what parents need to be teaching their children. My friends, we need to recognize today that mothers and grandmothers, and there are many mothers and grandmothers in this congregation, do you realize the high calling to which you are called? Because you've been given a great position of responsibility. God has entrusted you to raise children, to teach children, to love children, to train them in the way they should go, to direct their path. God has given you that awesome responsibility. Do you realize it? The awesome responsibility and opportunity that you have. I pray that you would strive to make sure you use that opportunity to its fullest. I want to close this morning by reminding our congregation that there are so many things in this world that, that vie for our attention, that compete for our focus and attention. And there's more things, it seems, today than there's ever been. With electronics and, and television and internet, there's so many things that struggle to, to gain the attention of our children. But there's only one thing that has eternal significance. All those other things that vie for attention now will not last eternally. They're here today and they're gone tomorrow. Maybe it seems so far out, the things that dominate our lives today. But it won't be that long until we look back and wonder, did we even ever devote time to those things? You know, now people spend hours and hours on Twitter or even still Facebook. There was a time where it was MySpace. And think about that. That's gone. That's gone. There'll be a day we look back and have forgotten what Twitter even is. Television shows that we forgot we ever watched, they don't matter. The one thing that matters we're not teaching our children. He's given us an awesome responsibility to model faithfulness and to model what we are called to do and to be, to bring God glory, to love Him, to live to see Him glorified. My friends, we don't have to wonder what it looks like when a generation forgets that duty in charge. The Bible tells us. If you have your Bible, turn to Judges chapter 2. Judges chapter 2, and as you get there, look at verses 6 through 10. Now, this is a generation that had seen firsthand what God had done, had seen firsthand what God had done. Listen to what it says. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which had, he had done for Israel. This generation had seen it all. They had seen all that God had done. They had seen it all. Now Joshua the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was 110 years old. And they buried him within the border of of his inheritance in Timnath Heres, in the mountains of Ephraim, 
on the north side of Mount Gaosh. And when all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them who did not know the Lord nor the work which he had done for Israel. Brothers and sisters, that is a heartbreaking passage. A heartbreaking passage. Here was a generation that had seen all that the Lord had done by his mighty hands. They had seen all these marvels, all these works, all these amazing things. They saw it. They didn't just hear of it. They saw it. And yet somehow they forgot to tell their children. Notice it doesn't say another generation arose who did not know the Lord or did not love the Lord. They didn't know the marvelous things he had done. That means quite clearly they had never been taught. They had never been taught. My friends, if you read that text, you'll see what befalls a generation like that. And yet I fear we're living in a time with a similar occurrence. I know when I was a kid, even the kids that didn't go to church knew the stories of the Bible. They had some conscience of, of Scripture. And now I fear we live in an age where there are many who do not know anything about the Lord. There are many in our churches who may not know that much about the Lord. My friends, we have to recognize that we are failing in our primary duty. Now our primary duty really is to give God glory, but He's called us to teach our children. How are we giving God glory if we're not teaching our children about God's glory, about His holiness? My friends, we need to recognize that we are failing in our charge, not only to glorify God and to enjoy Him, but also in the charge that we are given as parents to train up the most precious gift we have ever been given, which is our children. Now, I should probably say our most precious gift is our salvation in Christ. Okay, beyond that, as in our earthly walk in life, children are the most precious gift we are given. And we are failing in our primary duty in that regard to train them up in the way that they should go. What a tragedy. Mothers and fathers, grandmothers and grandfathers forgetting to charge and to tell their own children and grandchildren about the glorious God that we serve, the God in His grace who has offered salvation to those who will trust in Christ. What a tragedy. My friends, we need to recognize that there is a a similar thing in our own day, and we need to think about it. We need to recognize the call that exists on us as parents and grandparents. Aunts and uncles, whoever you are, take the opportunity to reach out to those who you love. Take the opportunity you have to model out your faith. The word of the Lord tells us they'll ask us about it. They'll ask, Mom, why do you pray before meals? Dad, why do you pray so often? Mom, why do we go to church on Sundays? Grandma, why do you read the Bible? Grandpa, what is the Bible? Grandpa, were you baptized? What does it mean? Mothers and grandmothers, fathers and grandfathers, do you have any idea the blessing it is when our children come to us and ask questions? Because believe me, there'll be a time where If this goes wrong, you'll be begging that they would have any interest at all in the things of the Lord. 
when they come to ask questions, recognize it is a precious gift from Almighty God and be prepared to give an answer and understand the precious and awesome position that you've been put into. Today's Mother's Day. We're going to hear a lot about flowers and boxes of candy and cards. But all of those things pale in comparison to the awesome gift God has given us in our children. I pray that we would not take it for granted, but that we would use this awesome responsibility for the glory of God our Father as we lift high our King Jesus Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.